Let me start this morning by saying thank you so much for our team who have led us today and also a special thanks to the team who are working at the back of the church this morning supporting us. We live in a really blessed time in the sense that we could probably not have done what we're doing 20 years ago in that we didn't have the technology but God has looked after us in terms of our timing. For those of you who've been part of our congregation for some time, you will be aware that we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark and we're turning our attention to the Gospel of Mark again today. We're marching our way through, in fact we're marching towards Easter and the culmination of the events of Easter. So I'm going to read the passage, this morning's passage, uh, today's passage comes from Mark chapter 11, it's verses 12 through to uh, the end of verse 25. If you'd like to follow with me, if you've got a Bible or a device in front of you, that would be great. Mark chapter 11 verse 12 says, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began to look for ways to kill Jesus, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus said. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he has uh, seen, it will happen. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. One of the challenges that we have as we come to scriptures, any scripture for that matter, but particularly a narrative passage like the one that we're looking at this morning, is uh, the challenge of imagining what it was like for those who were there. So what I'd like to do today is something quite different, something that I'd planned uh, some time ago and even though we are living in uncertain and uncer- uh, unusual circumstances, we're going to continue to do this anyway. I want you to imagine uh, this story being told by someone who was there, one of the disciples. So I'm just going to take on a different character for a few moments and, uh, and walk you through this story and uh, tell it from a slightly different angle. So thank you for the opportunity of coming and sharing with you these rather unusual events that surround uh, the circumstances of the cursing of the fig tree and this clearing of the temple thing that Jesus did. If you really want to understand the story behind this story, you need to understand the context. The rabbis always teach us that. You need to know what came before and what came before is rather interesting and rather unusual. As was our Jewish custom, we were going up to Jerusalem, we did that for each of the feasts 
And it was a busy, busy time in the city. Always hundreds of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in the city. And the city was so full, in fact, that Jesus, along with the other disciples and myself, would end up staying out in one of the villages in the nearby countryside uh, because the city was so busy. Just over the Mount of Olives in a little city called Bethany. On this occasion, though, things were a bit different because the day before the circumstances that I'm describing, Jesus took us aside and he said to us, he said to the disciples that were with him, we're going up to Jerusalem, we're going to be betrayed, I'm going to be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law, I'm going to be condemned to death and handed over to the Romans who would mock him, flog him, spit on him and kill him. And tell you the honest truth, we did not understand what that meant at the time. We, we disciples were confused by that. We were expecting him to go up and, and, and be the anointed king, the, the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. And as we approached Jerusalem on this particular occasion, Jesus said to us, go ahead into the village just up the road there and you'll find a colt, a foal, the foal of a donkey who'd never been ridden. And so we went... And the owner who uh, was, the, was looking after the foal said, what do you want it for? And we said, well, uh, the, the Lord has said that he is uh, to take this foal. And the owner said, no problems. That was a bit of a surprise. But then it's a reminder to us, I guess, that as disciples of Christ, whatever we do in the name of Jesus, we do with his authority. Because we took his authority into that place. And as I've learned over the years subsequently, and we've reflected on this event, we realised, I've realised that when we do anything in the name of Christ, we do it with the authority of Christ. And so when we go into our neighbourhood, we go with the authority of Jesus. Some of us kind of go a bit nervous and anxious sometimes. What are people going to think? What will people say? But as we go in the name of Jesus, we go with his authority. But I digress from my story. Let's get back to the story. What happened next was really quite amazing. We returned with the colt and Jesus mounted the colt, although I have to just be honest and say our friend Luke, that fantastic historian, the doctor, reminds us in his account of this event that we actually put Jesus onto the colt, which in some senses is a reminder of his royalty. We placed him on the, on the colt. We were in some senses pointing out uh, an important element of his character. And then as we approached Jerusalem, as Jesus rode on that colt into the city, the place was gripped by a kind of a euphoria, an excitement that um, meant that the whole crowd started shouting and, and taking off cloaks and laying their cloaks on the ground and tree branches and and shawls and all sorts of stuff, even palm branches. Can you believe that? Palm branches. That's kind of unusual because palm branches don't grow in Jerusalem. Palm branches don't grow in that city, it's too high. Palm branches had to actually be carried physically from Jericho, where they grew way down there by the Dead Sea, all the way up the Wadi, a good day's travelling up to Jerusalem. Normally they were kind of used for other festivals, not the Passover festival. But even on, on this occasion, people were putting the branches down and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means salvation. Salvation, come and save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I'm kind of sure that some of them were familiar with uh, the ancient prophet Zechariah who prophesied years before that there would be a king coming to Jerusalem 
And to rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. You see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coal, uh, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Zechariah understood that God would send a king and that he would come on a colt and that he would save. And this is just what Jesus appeared to be doing, at least to the people. That's what they were looking for. I guess they were expecting Jesus to raise up a great army. And do you know this kind of celebration was typical of what happened at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles? People would gather and there would be celebrations and light and feasting and excitement. The same kind of excitement that gripped the people as Jesus arrived on the colt. Here comes the king, they were saying. Here comes the chosen one of God who will save. But what the crowd didn't understand was that Jesus was indeed the king who was coming. But not as the king who was coming victorious at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. But at the time of the Passover as the sacrificial Passover lamb. Anyway, no sooner had Jesus entered Jerusalem, there was all this excitement and, uh, and what happened next was rather strange. He had a look around all of the city, the crowds dispersed and we went home. Kind of weird, strange experience. But I guess one of the things I'd reflect on as I look back is a lesson that we've learned a few times from hanging around with Jesus and that is this. It's important never to mistake enthusiasm for faith. There's a big difference between those two things. Likewise, it's important not to confuse popularity with discipleship. People can be bubbling full of enthusiasm. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that at all. People might be as popular as you like. Those things are fine, but they don't necessarily indicate faith. And Jesus taught us that, that there's deeper things that we need to look for than enthusiasm and popularity, which is one of the reasons he did not court the popularity of the crowds, because he didn't see the faith that sat behind that. Anyway, that's just the start of the story that I wanted to tell you today. The next morning, it kind of starts to get interesting because we left quite early and and Jesus said as we were walking, gee, I'm a bit hungry and in the distance he spotted a fig tree. Now, it was uh, at the time of the Passover and you need to understand the Passover happens in springtime and it's a time when the fig trees are starting to leaf up. In fact, normally uh, mature figs would not be found until much later in the season. Everybody knows that, even Jesus would have known that. It was way too early to see figs at the Passover and some people think wow Jesus has kind of made a mistake doesn't he know when figs are going to be there Uh, maybe he was being unfair on the tree the tree should have had fruit but it was too early it didn't it was not the tree's fault let me explain something from a Jewish perspective about figs you see in winter the fig tree has no leaves but then comes springtime when the warm spring sunshine comes, the, uh, the lifeblood, the sap of the tree starts to flow and then the tree bursts forth with leaves and also flowers. Now in Hebrew we call them pagum. They're kind of tiny little flowers, which, some of which normally would become the fruit. It bursts forth, it's surrounded by a skin, it looks like a tiny little fig and let me tell you, our people consider them a delicacy. People would look for those early figs 
those tiny little pagum and they would pick them off and eat them. Now you might think that's kind of weird but I know that there are some people in your culture who eat uh, stuffed zucchini flowers. How strange is that? But here in my culture uh, we had people who would look for that pagum, that early fruit on the fig. Some of those would develop to full fig, some would die off and fall off which is uh, not at all unusual. Jesus went to this tree, this tree that had leaf bursting forth but he found no pagum, no fruit. No promise of fruits. And then we all heard him say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And we kind of were left scratching our heads a bit thinking, what, what was that all about? You know, that's strange. And then we continued on into the heart of the city of Jerusalem, into the temple area for the second time in his life of ministry. Jesus went in and was distressed and angry about what he saw. There were traders everywhere. There's this great commotion of traders at work there, traders who were there to make a quick shekel, traders who were there involved in trying to rip off the people who were coming in from out in the country, you know, people from up our way in Galilee who are not kind of so used to the hustle and bustle of the city, they would be taken advantage of, graft and corruption, all that sort of stuff, all taking place in the shadow of the very place that should have been set aside as representative of God's presence people shouting, people carting stuff in and out. It was bedlam and Jesus got into the middle of it and he turned up the tables and he pushed out the traders and in the middle of this commotion as he started to teach the people, he said, isn't it written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you've made it into a den of robbers? And the people who were there, the crowds who were there, loved his teaching. (laughs) But I tell you what, those teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were upset. They, you could almost see the steam coming out of their ears. He'd upset them so often. But on this occasion, they went away and started to plot how they might put him to death. And as I look back at these events and I think about their attitude, you know, I reflect on the fact that it actually was probably fear at least in part, that drove their response. They were frightened that Jesus would change their comfortable world, that he'd change this system that they had created that they kind of liked and enjoyed, that he would cut away at the power base that they had established so that they were important in the community. I mean, after all, who doesn't mind being looked up to by others? Who doesn't mind receiving the accolades of others? Who doesn't mind it when people give you their kudos? And they feared that Jesus might ask them to surrender some of that stuff or lose some of their status. And to be honest with you, they're not that much different to any of us, are they really, when it all comes down to it? The truth is, Jesus really is the great disturber of the comfortable and the complacent. And it's really curious to reflect on the fact that what happened in those days uh, was almost this kind of juxtaposition, this opposition of two things. Jesus, uh, as he went up, the crowds, the children were crying out, Hosanna, the coming king and the Pharisees and the scribes and the tax, uh, not the tax collectors, they were off doing other stuff. Uh, the, the, uh, the leaders were saying, hush, be quiet, you know, don't do that. They just couldn't stand the noise that was being made as Jesus came up to Jerusalem and yet their ears were absolutely deaf to the noise of the traders, to the corruption, to the graft that was going on under their very noses. Uh, 
in the temple precincts. These leaders were prepared to put up with some ungodly stuff to maintain control. They were prepared to compromise for the sake of their own comfort. And it kind of, it's challenging, isn't it, that thought? How often are we sitting in a place like that where we try and maintain control? We put up with things that are perhaps ungodly to maintain our own comfort. And at this time, Jesus said that this temple was designed, it was the central focus was for it to be a house of prayer, even though all of the activities around him were geared to be a place of sacrifice. And of course, we didn't realise later on, uh, until later on, that all of this paraphernalia, all of this activity associated with sacrifice was going to be ending. It wasn't going to be necessary any longer because Jesus was the sacrifice. And at this Passover time, he was the sacrificial lamb who was coming to be sacrificed. Well, the next morning we were travelling along the same road and we were amazed to see that that fig tree that Jesus had cursed was withered from the roots. It took one day. Our brother Peter, who called our attention to it, said, Look, Rabbi, this tree is totally dead. And we might have expected Jesus to talk about the tree, but he didn't. He, he spoke about other things. Instead of talking about the tree, he talked about prayer. And it wasn't until later that I figured out why he did that. You see, the whole deal with the fig tree was not uh, that it was just a tree that bore the brunt of Jesus' frustration. It was not as though Jesus got up that morning and had the hungry thirsties and so he just wasn't himself. You know, if that had been the case, he would have cursed an oak tree not a fig tree. The fig tree was a parable, it was actually an acted parable. Jesus often taught in parables, we were witness to that on many occasions. On this occasion it was an acted parable and it was an acted parable that was a strong warning to God's people, to God's chosen people Israel. The nation had been around for a long time and God had said always, I'm looking for fruit. I want you to bear the fruits of righteousness, of holiness, of purity. I want you to be a nation that draws others because of your worship of me. But it wasn't happening. The nation was going about its business just like the traders in the temple, just doing their business. All of the signs of life were there, but there was no fruit. And it's kind of curious that even... Today, you know, we're a few years down the track that people get themselves in quite a lather about spiritual gifts and, and ministry activity. But if that's all they focus on and not the fruit, they can fall into that same trap that Israel fell into. Spiritual gifts are only legitimate when they're expressed in the context of spiritual fruits. You see, our brother Paul had to deal with that issue in Corinth where the people had become so focused on the gifts and the, and the excitement of the gifts, they'd lost sight of the importance of the fruits. But Jesus just didn't give us a lesson about the importance of spiritual fruit either, as might have been expected. He went way deeper than that. He spoke about faith. How faith in God could move mountains, not the adherence to traditions, how it was faith in God that uh, was the thing that God was always looking for, not the rituals of the temple, not the sacrifice that had become so all-consuming. God had always been looking for obedience in His people. God had always been looking for faith in His people. God has always been looking for the heart 
of his people. It was the kind of faith that killed the fig tree in one day. And although God never calls us to do those kinds of things, he does call us to have faith in the one who can do those kinds of things. In this somewhat confronting pastoral passage from the book of Mark, a passage that has caused a lot of problems for some people over the years. If you're uh, participating in our sermon study series, I've alluded to the fact that there are people like Bertrand Russell who looked at this passage and said, I can't believe in a Jesus who would act in such a capricious manner. In the normal course of events as, uh, as pastors, we might say something like this. You know, we need to be constantly examining our religious life together We need to be asking ourselves, are there things that we do that we've allowed to become sacrosanct? Are there patterns in our worship or activities in our week that we have allowed to become the focus? I remember many years ago now, one time, I was leading a communion service. I may have shared this story before and on this particular occasion used uh, a loaf of bread that I got from the bakery along with the little communion cups that we were so familiar with. And one dear lady in the congregation came to me afterwards and said, David, that bread was not unleavened bread. And inwardly I smiled and thought to myself, I wonder what she would say if I pulled out alcoholic wine because she would never have touched wine in her life. But it was an illustration of the irrationality that there is sometimes in some of the things that we make sacred. But as Matt's already explained, here we are this morning in a situation that is really quite unusual. I don't want to use the words that the media use, unprecedented, that word's become passe in some respects. But it's true to say that churches across our world have lost uh, the opportunity to participate in, in one of the activities that is very central to their identity. We cannot for the moment gather as the people of God in a public gathering. If you ask the average person on the street, what is church about? It's often understood as that public gathering, this gathered body of believers. Now, I'm not going to suggest for one second, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not going to suggest for one second that there was a problem with our corporate gatherings. You know, some critic might say, well, God has stopped it so that you can correct it. That would not necessarily be true. But there is an opportunity for us to reflect on who we are and what we do and what's central to who we are and what we do. Back in history, there were many in Israel who could not conceive of what worship of Yahweh would look like after the temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians and yet the synagogue movement rose from the ashes and people learnt what it uh, it meant to be the people of God in very different circumstances. Israel was able to maintain its faith even though they were scattered across the globe. The same was true after AD 70 when the temple was again demolished by the Romans. That central place of worship, the focus for Israel's faith was gone. They had to learn what it meant to be God's people. Throughout history it would be true to say that the church has constantly had to ask the question, who are we? What is it look like when we can't do what we've normally done what is core to our faith in our context i am glad to be able to say that we have for years been emphasizing the fact that we are the church wherever we go this place that i'm in right now is not the church it's just a building it's just a facility that we used we are the church wherever we are 
and perhaps if we could say anything critical it would be that we've become a little bit lazy in allowing our public gathering to be the one defining element of who we are for this season in life we might need to do something about that as of this weekend we have had a very blunt reminder that it's not our rituals or our traditions that define who we are it's actually faith it's faith that Jesus called for in this passage faith that sustains us in the face of fear and anxiety faith that overpowers the enemy who would love to cause grief for the church right now faith that Jesus said when exercised according to God's will will move mountains and I'm encouraged by the opportunity that we as a church congregation have to move mountains in our community to connect with our neighbours in ways that we may never have done so to meet with people that we might not already know to create networks that will sustain us as Matt's already said and let me just add a couple of my own comments be encouraged by the word of God for time and time again in the face of change and uncertainty God has demonstrated his faithfulness be prayerful pray for the church pray for our leaders pray for our neighborhood pray for one another pray for our community pray for those that you interact with and be together in some way that's important to keep some of those rhythms of worship don't get out of the habit of meeting together and meeting with the Lord let's pray gracious God as always today we are so thankful for your word your word that speaks to our circumstances no matter what they are uh, that happens because your word is living it is alive it is empowered by your Holy Spirit who is at work in us in our community in our world right now Lord we have prayed this morning for our community we have prayed for our neighborhoods we have prayed for our leaders we have prayed Lord that the circumstances that we are finding ourselves in now would be used to your glory and we echo those prayers again now for each one reflecting on your word this morning drive them deep into your heart to your love to your purposes I pray that we might live as your people in a way that we may never have before may we find the time that we are in as one of encouragement and opportunity not fear and anxiety as we seek the Lord for we ask this in the precious the strong the powerful and the overcoming name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. Amen.